So I want to ask the question, in terms of uh, interfaith dialogue, Catholic engagement with other religions, does natural law theory offer a good resource in, uh, in terms of the context of that engagement? Unfortunately, when I was asked to do this uh, paper, I came across the International Theological Commission's document of 2009, which gave me an answer. And the answer was yes. And the document is called In Search of a Universal Ethic, A New Look at the Natural Law. And I'm not here concerned to um, talk about the way in which it tries to present natural law in the light of the various challenges, although, in fact, a number of those topics have been covered already. What I would like to look at is the way it suggests natural law can allow us to engage with other religions. And in one sense, I have to admit, when I first read it, I thought it was a bit stretched. And it would be a difficult job, but then I thought I must, I must try and uh, be resourceful here. So um, th this is the result of it. Now, I wanted to try and choose a really difficult example, uh, just because difficult examples make it more convincing if you can argue your way out of it. So I will choose, uh, I think, one of the most difficult examples from Hinduism, and I've chosen Hinduism in particular, because Jews and Muslims and Catholics have actually gone a long way on the whole topic of natural law. Hardly surprising since in all of those three traditions, Aristotle is incorporated in uh, certain philosophical elements so that we have in the modern period a kind of really fast forward movement with forms of Judaism uh, connected with Maimonides, the philosophical development there in Islam through Averroes and a minority tradition that should get much more coverage where reason is an important element in terms of the defense of faith. But when we come to Hinduism and Buddhism, we really do hit a bit of a brick wall because Aristotle didn't get there. We've got uh, alien types of philosophical systems with the question, can there be engagement connection with this type of tradition? Now, the ITC document sketches out very admittedly superficially because it's covering a lot of things. It's conviction, and I quote here, that if we look at different religions and non-religious traditions, we will find something, quote, to testify to the existence of a patrimony of values common to all human beings, no matter how these values are justified within a particular worldview. Manifest not least in the golden rule and what you hate, do not to anyone and as is found in one form or another in the majority of wisdom traditions. Okay, so um, Martin Ganeri, uh, Dominican Thomist, uh, write, or wrote a very excellent essay pointing out to the difficulty of applying this whole um, point of convergence with Hinduism. 
because specifically Hinduism's universal laws, the universal law of Dharma, the general principle, is applied concretely and specifically only to the Hindu caste group and therefore immediately doesn't allow the universalization of the Dharma. And it also has the very particular ways in which prudentially the Dharma is applied such that Ganeri says that the examples given by the ITC are in danger are in danger of being facile because they do not take seriously, and this is a kind of McIntyre point which is raised, the incommensurability between the two traditions. Metaphysically, cosmologically, ethically, they are vastly different operating in different kind of orbits. So the real challenge is, can natural law bridge those potentially incommensurable gaps. And very interestingly, McIntyre um, sort of shows in his own attempt at talking about Confucianism that actually uh, it is possible when you take incommensurably not all the way down, but as a sign of the difficulty of different systems engaging. So what I shall do then because I, I need to kind of give a bit of background in Hinduism, is jump straight into the material. I've decided to choose an example that's pretty revolting to me instinctively in Hinduism. And I don't do this in a negative sense, right? Um, which is the tradition of sati, uh, the immolation of a wife on a funeral pyre. And I can kind of do this safely to some extent, because of course it is illegal now in India. And interestingly, the British were very resistant to interfering with Hindu religious practices, didn't want to ban it because it would be a kind of colonial move against the religion of the Hindus. And it was actually Hindu movements that put pressure on the British government to make it illegal. So we're talking about uh, something that Hinduism doesn't value any longer, officially speaking. But I think it's a brilliant instantiation of a general law with the question, can this seemingly revolting, almost evil sort of act contain any connection in terms of understanding what motivates it within the Hindu tradition, which would allow natural law theory to illuminate it. Okay, so the answer is going to be, uh, I'll kill the drama in case you fall asleep, the answer is going to be yes, there is a connection. And hopefully that will keep you awake to think, how on earth could such a bizarre, horrific act have any connection with the natural law? Okay, so the tradition of sati is illegal, outlawed, and banned. It is a tradition whereby the wife of a husband who has died would have two kind of options. One is they may choose the path of being a widow. The other option is the path of sati, which is to be immolated upon the funeral fire, the funeral pyre 
of the husband. Okay, so it's self-immolation of the woman on the funeral pyre. So the question then is, how do we map the meaning of sati? And what I want to use is um, a 16th century text that was written for the royal court in Tanjung. And it's a text by Trayamakachan, who is a court uh, pundit, Brahmin, theologian, philosopher, and priest. And in his document, The Guide to the Religious Status and Duties of Women, he outlines how the general law of Dharma, which is to do good, to follow one's duty, and pursue what is right, becomes implemented specifically in the role of the wife in the instance where her husband dies first. In explaining this, he outlines a number of points which are very important. The first is, he's at pains to explain this is not an act of suicide, because an act of suicide is not allowed. It is against the Dharma. It is doing harm. He draws the example, which is a very typical example, of the warrior, the um, second major caste group who may, because of duty, have to go into war, knowing that he will die, and that cannot be construed as an act of suicide. Therefore, Trambayakajan argues that in this instance, if a woman freely chooses sati, number one, it cannot be understood as suicide and therefore is not prohibited against the tradition. Second point he wants to make is that a woman should never be forced to do this. And in his estimation, most women are not capable of it. They have too many crazy thoughts. Possibly when their husbands died, they're full with both sorrow but lust as well. He also argues that a sinful woman will find it very difficult to carry out this act. Third point he wants to make, and it's important to understand the ritual duties in Hinduism, we have three types. There are obligatory duties that every Hindu must do, such as prayer. Doing that incurs merit, although it is obligatory, it must be done. There's a second uh, category, which is occasional acts of merit, such as marriage. It may be that one gets married once, so it's an occasional act, and in carrying out marriage, one accures certain types of merit because it is a good action. The third category is the optional type of meritorious act, and this is where sati is situated. So he is arguing it is not required, it is an option, and it is meritorious. The question is then, what sort of benefit can it have for the woman who makes this option? And this is where we get to the heart of the understanding religiously of sati. And I reiterate uh, 
because I don't want to mislead, I'm not in any sense wanting to underwrite or affirm the practice. I'm interested in the logic behind the explanation of this tradition. So when he gets to this point of the argument, he begins to then say, there is in sati a particular transgression of the normal karmic acts. Now, this is a really important point. All actions have good or bad fruits. Every action that the person do in the general law of Dharma means they cure the good or bad fruits and they won't go away. So when you die, you will have to undergo the good or bad fruits that you have built up in life. It's a kind of strict moral universe. So now this is the important bit of the transaction. He argues that a woman who freely undertakes sati because of her devotion to the Dharma, to the law and the option that is open to her, can actually accure three types of merit. The first form of merit is that in undertaking this ritual act, she undoes the sins, her own uh, lack of good fruits in life, such that she is cleansed. And he uh, brings in a very interesting argument that this is actually based on the whole notion of the Vedic sacrifice. Okay, so that there's a sacrifice being undertaken which undoes the negative fruits of karma for the person who's undertaking it. And that's kind of making sense in terms of the logic of karma. The second fruit, and this is where it gets really quite fascinating, he argues that there can be a transference of merit, that the woman in undertaking this act can transfer the merit of her good act so that it can actually redeem her husband. And he makes this remarkable point, which in terms of Hindu cosmology is quite shocking because he's actually in a royal court. He argues that not only can it save her husband from all of the transgressions he's committed, it can even save him from the worst sort of transgression, which is killing a Brahmin. Okay, so you kill the, the highest caste Hindu, that really incurs a lot of bad merit. And this wife has the ability to undo, if you like, the most grievous sin. And there's a lovely uh, quotation uh, from the text, uh, which I will read here. Even in the case of a husband who has entered into hell itself, and who, seized by the servants of death and bound with terrible bonds, has arrived at the very place of torment, even if he is already standing there, helpless and wretched, quivering with fear because of his evil deeds, even if, he's a, even if he is a Brahmin killer or the murderer of a friend, even then, a woman who refuses to become a widow i.e. by choosing sati, can purify him. In dying, she takes him with her. 
Okay, so there's no commensurate equivalent of hell and heaven here. The more important point is that the woman has transferential merit attached to this act. The third level of transferential merit is that not only is it to the husband, but it can be in the case of a sati who is pure and does not have many sins to atone for, the transferential merit can be actually applied to the wider community, to both the husband and her own family. In the case of very famous satis, it is also said to apply to the whole community, including people who come to the sati shrine to do puja and devotion. Now, it took someone like Robert de Nobili, who witnessed in a remarkable act, which is uh, scary to think about, in 1606, the great Rajput prince, Nayak Krishnapur, died. And since he had a lot of wives, 404, there was a mass sati. Do nobody witness this? And his reaction was very interesting. It's reported that, and I quote, he rued the fact that the sati were not co-religionists, since such would have further heightened the glories of Christian martyrology. Interesting insight. I mean, nobody was understanding the transaction of transferential merit that I'm talking about. So the question I want to ask now is in the midst of such a kind of horrific ritual act, can we see a pattern of natural law given that all ritual acts must be committed in some way to the good? And I think this was the kind of tail end of the discussion of, of, of your uh, talk, uh, uh, Sister Catherine. Um, can we connect with this, but even more importantly, can the connection lead to, and the ITC make this point very strongly, the natural law should also be connected to Christological themes because it has that purpose and function. Okay, so I'm going to try and do all that in about seven minutes and suggest it's a plausible way to do it, and then you can say, not convinced. So the first point then, in trying to say, here we have something rather important, is that the law of Dharma definitely operates with the principle that one must seek to do the good, and the good is not simply for oneself but the good of the community. That's the general law. If you're a warrior caste, if you're a Brahmin caste, if you're a woman, if you're a man, etc., as you're plotted onto the Dharma, as it descends into the level of prudential application in texts called the Dharma Sastras, we find then out how this is worked out. So the first point is there is a point of connection 
in terms of the general law of Dharma, although it sits in a very, very different cosmological, ontological worldview. So there's no neat assimilation. The second point is that as we look at this law applied, we find both the affirmation of a law that abides throughout the universe, the Dharmic law, but also the possibility of how that law can be shifted through sacrifice. Now, that, again, is internal logic to the Vedas and the importance of sacrifice. But what I think is really interesting is we have a doctrine of transferential merit, whereby the actions of one person can be understood to redeem another person from the punishment that is due to them. You can see the plot line now. The third point I want to make is that in the middle or in the midst of this practice, can we see a pattern whereby we can say there is a logic here for a preparatio evangelica, that the gospel can actually speak into this situation because it contains a logic that points towards, if you like, Christ as the supreme sati. Now, I say that with some tentative care, but I'm just um, speaking among friends who are all tired and need something to keep them awake. So Christ as the supreme sati is a way of introducing the dramatic and radical idea that both there is a law that is upheld in the universe and that humans freely can act so as there can be a change in that law and one human in particular acts so as to undo and not require any further sacrifices. This is a kind of theme analogically one might find in the book of Hebrews in discussing the necessity of the sacrifice and the repeat of sacrifices. So you will notice, I think, I hope, that there's an attempt to say Hinduism has a point of contact where we can actually look even at its darkest moments according to its own tradition now. I should say in brackets, while uh, sati is illegal, it still carries on in the district of uh, North India. Uh, there's some horrific accounts because of the fact that it's illegal, they're all carried out with all sorts of... Um, subterfuge, but quite uh, interestingly, after it was made illegal, there was one particular sati who, in her act of self-immolation, became heralded in the district. The state ordered that there could not be any memorial to her, but a memorial was put up. The state ordered no one could visit it 
but people did. The military were called out, but were very reticent to actually, like the British, intervene in uh, the religious practices of Hindus. So it is a practice that still carries on, but I've written about the actual case because it's a very interesting one. The point that I want to finish with is if it's possible to take a particular act which seems so dissimilar, so outrageously odd, and yet part of traditional Hinduism until recently, to show these points of connection, to be able to narrate the possibility that the Christian message really does speak to the inner logic of the Hindu form of Dharma, then we have two most important things going on. We have genuine interreligious dialogue, although I'm talking to dead texts and no Hindu will come out publicly and want to defend this practice, but it's a sort of form of interreligious dialogue with dead texts. But secondly, it's also a point that I'm wanting to underline that all engagement with other religions must also have a missionary um, dimension, otherwise it's not real engagement. It's maybe phenomenological study, it's maybe praise, all of those things are great, but in the end, the natural law potentially gives us the resource to engage at two different levels, to recognize how in Hinduism there's a move away from how the natural law is broken through grace, in inverted commas, and in this instance, Christ as a figure who can remove and redeem the sins of the world, who can even descend to possible Brahmin killers or Christ killers, so that they may be redeemed from the jaws of hell. Thank you, Professor Costa. So we have several minutes for questions. Thank you, Professor, for that interesting presentation. Um, questions. One is related to uh, the limitations of the applicability of Dharma, as you pointed out. Um, if Dharma applies only to kind of ethnicity, it would seem that um, this is not unique to Hindus, uh, right? There are other there are other uh, groups or religions that say we have a law that applies to us, and then there's a law that applies to the other. And it's an interesting issue as to whether the universality of the natural law, as such, breaks the ethnic moral mindset. Mm -hmm. So it goes beyond ethnic boundaries or on um, boundaries of us and other and it already implies a kind of universal human nature that can perhaps be redeemed by a single savior. So I'm just interested in that that thought. Um, and then the second is um, more about uh, different strands of Hinduism. And um, uh, would you say that that Hinduism, you know, just even that is like doing their things, but but um, it seems that some would argue that Dharma is our understanding and perhaps does not persist for all times in all versions of the universe, and so that would somewhat undermine 
this idea of natural light and say, well, there's a normal that applies now that, that fits these circumstances, but perhaps in another universe, another cycle of being, um, there could be a different problem. I don't wonder what you would say about that as well. So two easy questions. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, I, I, I think the question of applicability is a intriguing one because um, Louis Dumont, in his study of the hierarchists, tries to point out how the different ways societies are structured means that the very notion of equality actually doesn't have a unitary meaning. So that you can have some societies, uh, I mean, we can see this, say, if we look in the dogmatic constitution of the church, we can see a religious has a particular role whose goal is holiness, and the religious person will seek it in particular ways. The married person will have the same goal and seek it in different ways, etc. So we have a very complicated, stratified universe. The Dharmic uh, issue of applicability, and this is, I think, Ganeri's great point, it's not universal in the way that we understand it, but in terms of the prudential application of it in the caste system and then in the different roles and in the different periods, what we have is the attempt, as we do in the history of Christian thought, of how to understand universal laws and rules over time, not applied in flat societies, but in complex societies. So I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure that it's a problem. Well, one, it's not a problem for Hindus until neo-Hinduism comes about in the modern period, where there has to be a question of how does the Dharma apply to non-Hindus? And then you get the development of neo-Hinduism saying, well, what it does, you know, the, the religions in some ways carry out Dharmic rules in their particular way, but they've encrusted in it all sorts of odd uh, exclusive claims, etc., etc. So in that sense, Neo-Hinduism does attempt to universalize the Dharma in a way that classical Hinduism doesn't. I mean, if you're not a Hindu, you're just out of it. You know, the, the best way is you get reincarnated eventually, become a Hindu, and then you eventually get reincarnated and become a Brahmin, male, and then you can make it. So I don't know whether that's an actual problem, the complexity of the context of applicability, because the Dharma itself is a universal uh, law that pervades all things. But then we come to your second question, does it? And really, you know, the answer has to be differentiated. So I give an instance of one particular ritual act, which doesn't even operate anymore. But to me, this testing of the ITC's document would simply require constant attempt to speak to different metaphysical, cosmological forms of Hinduism to test out where the points of contact are. So we have, you know, certain forms of Hinduism with a very atheistic universe. What do we do there? Answer is start searching for points of contact, which could have a resonance. 
Uh, I use Dharma simply because the ITC throw it out as the way to approach Hinduism. But I acknowledge that when we talk about actual concrete religions, we just have to speak very specifically, both in time and space, because there's huge variety and huge difference. So I'm not daunted by the possibility that there will be cases that just at the moment we can't find a connection. But in the main schools of Hinduism, the law of Dharma still operates, I would contest. Um, so, yeah, big task, very specific conversations. Easier to do business possibly with theistic Hinduism, which is what Martin Ganeri's argument is, is compared to non-theistic forms. Um, but I think what's very interesting is even the non-theistic forms are operating with Dharma. 